You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. We're going to dive right in now because uh, this is the final sermon of an eight-part sermon series uh, on the pursuit of happiness. And what we have done is taken eight Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. The introduction of the Sermon on the Mount is these eight Beatitudes. And we've taken those eight. We've turned them into eight sermons. Now, I've never done that before in my 31 years of pastoring this church and 36 or 7 years of preaching the Word. I've, I've, I've preached a message on the Beatitudes. I've preached in the Sermon on the Mount. But I've not taken the time to just individually, verse by verse, go through this. And so it's been a joy for me to study and to prepare and to present God's Word in this way as we've been going through this pursuit of happiness. And so we're at the eighth and final principle. And in the last beatitude, Jesus basically says that if you want God's blessing on your life, you must learn to deal with the issue of opposition. You must learn to deal with the harassment of your faith. You must learn and understand what it means to be persecuted. Here in this statement, this beatitude, it was so shocking that Jesus actually said it twice. Some scholars like to say there's nine beatitudes, but, but most, if not nearly all, agree that this is one beatitude, but Jesus repeats it two times. And what's interesting is, in the second mention of this, of this persecution in this beatitude, he personalizes it. I just think that's somewhat interesting. Jesus personalizes the final beatitude for you. The other seven beatitudes use the words theirs or those or they. Notice with me in Matthew chapter 5, if you would, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall, they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And then notice as he begins the beatitude, the eighth beatitude, again he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, Israel. Blessed are you, Dave. Blessed are you, Randy. Blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus repeats it and personalizes it for you. It's like Jesus pauses and then zones in on you as an individual. Notice also with me that Jesus gives more space to this beatitude 
in Scripture than he gives to all of the other seven. Persecution. I realize in our nation that we don't suffer persecution for our faith like they do in some countries of the world. Kevin and Paula would know this because they've been missionaries in China. And it's interesting to talk to missionaries in countries like China who can tell us that persecution is much different in countries like Iran, Iraq, North Korea, Muslim countries, communist nations. In America, it seems that our pressure is more often than not to conform to the world's ideology. We don't face much violent oppression, but rather silent repression. It's as if, and some call it this woke agenda, for churches it might be better described as theological liberalism, but, or maybe uh, just simply political correctness if you're, you've heard that term before. And it seems that these things are just repressing and suppressing many Christians. Generational apostasy is taking over the mainstream, and it's demonic. This demonic movement is alive and well, just like it was alive and well in the book of Jude, the little book of Jude, verse 18 and 19, which says, they said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause division. These are worldly people. They're devoid of the Spirit. Many churches are surrendering to a spiritual invasion from false teaching on everything from gender to sexuality to marriage. It seems that what should be repented of by God's people is instead being celebrated in the streets. There's a subtle pressure. I feel it. Maybe you feel it. It's a subtle pressure just to blend in, just to fit in, just to conform. No wonder Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I like how J.B. Phillips paraphrases this verse. He says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. But let God remold your minds from within. Eugene Peterson puts it like this in his paraphrase. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you just fit in without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. And yet there's this pressure to stay quiet. And if we don't, then we're going to be harassed as a Christian. It's inevitable. So how should we then, as Christians, handle harassment, opposition, and persecution? That's the question. How should we handle it? Because Jesus is saying this, blessed. Happy are you when you can handle and respond correctly to persecution, harassment, and criticism of your faith. Now, we know that Scripture teaches that if you follow Jesus, there are going to be people, in fact, many people, a growing number of people who aren't going to approve of your decisions. I learned that early on in my Christian life when I thought that everybody would be excited. As a 13-year-old boy, little Roman Catholic altar boy, raised in New Orleans, Louisiana, 
I get radically saved and born again, and it just explodes in my heart. I'm called to preach. I'm excited. I'm calling my relatives and finding out, wow, this is shocking. Not everybody's as excited about this as I am. I mean, the first time I was called a Jesus freak or a religious fanatic, not, not, not for being rude or, or ugly or arrogant or obnoxious, but just, just, just for really just being a Christian. Just for believing the things the Bible teaches as, as true and fact. If you live by these beatitudes that we've been studying for the past two months, you can expect some opposition, church. You can just expect it. So let's be prepared. We cannot, we, we can prepare ourselves so that we're not caught off guard. So for that reason, I'd like to give you three principles to overcome opposition. And, and much like the rest of the Beatitudes, as we've walked through these together, we'll illustrate some things and we'll walk through the meaning of it and, and, and talk about some of the more specific scriptural things about it. But then we'll give you some practical ways to handle opposition at the very end. So stay with me as I develop the message and as we grow in this together. Number one, the first thing I see as a principle here in overcoming opposition is you must realize the cause of opposition. Remember now, Jesus brings this topic up. Jesus himself brings up the topic of being persecuted. Look with me, if you would, at Matthew chapter 5. Let's read it again. Jesus says, Jesus brings it up. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted. They're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, Jesus says, when others revile you. When they persecute you. There's that word again. Or when they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. They lie about you. Now notice that the persecution Jesus is talking about is because you've been trying to live righteously. And and as a result of living righteously, you're being lied about. Again, look at the verse on the screen and take a moment just to notice again that it says, I think it it shows, yeah, no, I'm sorry, my bad. You did the right thing, Billy, you did right. So notice it says here, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. These are the reasons why we're being persecuted, for righteousness' sake. This is not for being obnoxious, not for being rude, not for being ugly, not for being mean-spirited, but for righteousness' sake. Jesus is not talking here about being in trouble or persecuted for something you did wrong. This is rather for righteousness' sake. But some people are persecuted for their own mistakes. Jesus is not talking about racial harassment here. He's not talking about sexual harassment here. He's not talking about being obnoxious like like some people even in the pulpit can be. I used to be more obnoxious as a young preacher. I know that I've been guilty in my 31-year tenure as a pastor. In, in my growth process, I would, even, I, would, I would only imagine that there's been times when I came across as arrogant for my faith. It's not talking about that. Some Christians are self-righteous. You've heard the sermons that say, turn or burn. If you die without Christ, you can die and fry. You know? And they bring it upon themselves. This is not being persecuted for righteousness' sake. There is a difference between persecution and punishment. We are punished by good men for doing evil. We are persecuted by evil men for doing good. Listen to how Eugene Peterson paraphrases our beatitude. 
He says you're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down, throw you out, speak lies about you to discredit me, Jesus says. What this means is that the truth is too close for comfort. And they're uncomfortable. The Apostle John tells us in John chapter 15 the right reason for opposition, harassment, and persecution when he says, do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted Jesus, says me, naturally, if you're a follower of Christ, since they persecuted me naturally, they will persecute you. And if they wouldn't listen to me, they won't listen to you. Jesus said the right reason for opposition is being more like Jesus. Isn't that what we all want to be this morning that are Christ followers? Surely all of you who are following Christ would say, yes, that's my desire, just to be more like Jesus. And if you do, you will experience opposition. They don't like to attack Jesus directly, so what they do is they attack his, his followers. The world crucified Jesus, and they would do it again if they had a chance. They didn't like Jesus, and they won't like you. Because the light in Jesus' life revealed the darkness in their own life. And if you shine as a Christian, I can, in, I can inform you of something. Someone's going to whine. The more you shine, the more people whine. The more you live like Jesus, it seems that oftentimes the more opposition in the world we face. And there's two reasons for this in the text that you suffer. Opposition and you're persecuted. First of all, simply, and it's right in the text, it is for righteousness' sake. It's for doing right. It's for being right. This is the reason for persecution. Secondly, it is for his name's sake. You will be persecuted simply for being a follower of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus might be, no, maybe, no, will be persecuted. And as the world gets more and more secular, I can assure you it's getting more hostile to Christianity. I think about some of our high school students here in our church as we challenge them to be more like Jesus, as we challenge them in the matter of purity. And as Scripture teaches, fornication, sex outside of marriage is sin. And as they determine to live a pure life and, 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 and grasp the reality of what it means to to be a virgin and, 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 to, and to live a life that is according to the Scriptures, I can only imagine the pressure, the harassment. They say that 9 out of 10 young people, teenagers, beginning at age 13 to age 18, 19, are actively having sex. And so if 10% are stepping into that environment with a commitment to Jesus Christ and what Scripture says... College students who go to college campuses and have a strong faith and step into the environment of a, of a secular college campus. Business people who 
who will step into their workplace and, 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 and live a life that honors God and speak like a Christian would speak and just simply do the things that God would have you to do. No doubt, as you step into those moments, there is going to be harassment. I remember as a 16-year-old young man, just got called to preach and had made a decision, just a simple decision, just to attend a youth service on Wednesday night. And as I got promoted at Sears to a really, really special job of, of working for commission on my sales, and as a 16-year-old kid making really good money, preparing for college, and, and yet Mr. Robleski, the manager, because I would not give in and, and, and work on that youth night that I had, was determined God wanted me to be a part of as a young preacher. At age 16, I heard the words, you're fired. And I went home early that day and told my mom, I was fired because of a, just simply a decision I had made, and I wasn't arrogant about it, I wasn't obnoxious. I actually said, Mr. Robleski, I understand you've got to do what you've got to do. But we understand these things. A genuine Christian will provoke opposition because they refuse to compromise or conform. A genuine Christian is just different. Abel was murdered by Cain because Abel was different. Joseph was was sent to prison for refusing to have sex with his boss's wife. Why? Joseph was different. The three Hebrew children in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down to the king and his idols, were just different. Daniel preferred to sleep with the lions rather than to give up his morning prayer time. He was just different. Remember, Jesus said, All who live godly will be persecuted. If you're not being harassed, it means nothing's different in your life. Question, are we different from the world around us? Someone has said very cleverly, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? What a thought. Number one, realize the cause of opposition. Number two, Remember the commendation for opposition. Now, let me introduce this because something kind of cool happened at Champion Christian College a couple of weeks ago. For those of you that don't know a lot about Champion, it's a four-year Christian liberal arts college, and we offer not only degrees in ministry and in missions and in youth work, but we offer degrees such as criminal justice and business and secondary education and elementary education, sports management. And so it is a really, really cool place. And we just came up to our five-year accreditation point where you have to be reaffirmed. And so it's an intense time because you really need this accreditation, and there's a heaps and heaps of paperwork that need to be done. There's loads of what's called assessment. It is intense. And for a period of time, everybody has all this added work until these really smart people who walk on campus and talk like they've got a steeple stuck in their throat with all kinds of numbers and letters next to their names, you know. I'm exaggerating to make a point. As soon as they get on campus, you sort of feel a little bit like, there they are, there they are, you know. So they were here, and they spent three days. 
They went into every office. They interviewed people. They checked this out microscopically. I mean, they looked at everything about the campus they could look at, and then they call a press conference. And they sit across this little uh, kind of tables that are set up, and then we sit out as the audience, you know, wondering what they're going to say, you know. And they open up this, you know, document that I brought with me that they've written about everything they saw. And they make, there's four different ways they can judge you. First of all, they can give what's called findings. A finding is something that you don't want. It's like, okay, we found out something that you could lose your accreditation for. Those are, those are not good. You can get recommendations. Recommendations are, they're not as bad. They're, they're really not difficult to answer. They're just, hey, we recommend these things. You need to do something about it, but we're not going to take your accreditation away for it. The third thing is what's called a suggestion. A suggestion could be something as simple as you need to, we think you need to repaint this or put more of your mission statements up. I and mean, these are just suggestions. If you do it, great. If you don't, great. We just suggest it. But then there's something called a commendation. Oh, this is something that if you get one, it's like, wow. The gentleman who was in charge of this really, this group of really smart people on campus that week, he had been doing this for 10 years. And so they come to the president's office before they tell the people in the little press conference. They come to the president's office and they sit down on my couch and they say, we want to tell you what we're about to tell everybody else so you're not shocked. And it was good. But he said, Pastor Capace, I want to begin with this. I've been doing this for 10 years. For 10 years I've been, been traveling and going to colleges and I've never one time given a commendation until this week. He said, for the first time ever. In my life, of, and I've done about 25 of these. I've never one time given a commendation, but I want to give you one, and here it is. He said, the evaluation team commends the board, the president, and the team of administrators, faculty, and staff for their commitment to strengthening, developing, and moving forward the institution in accordance with the stated mission of developing Christ-centered servant leaders. Amen. Thank you. Yes. That's good. So we got accommodation. And I, I thought that was really cool. And we were all just excited about it. And we were like, wow, this is really cool. And of course, it's because of all of the work that they've done. It's because of your prayers. It's an amazing thing. Well, look with me what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 12. Rejoice and be glad your reward. There's a commendation here. Your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Clearly, Scripture teaches that there is a reward for those who experience persecution. Thus, my point, let's remember the commendation for opposition. And Jesus says, in addition to that, just so you know, you're in really good company. They persecuted the prophets as well. I mean, good night. We're in company with Isaiah and Jeremiah if we're persecuted. It's an amazing thing. And Scripture includes this. Scripture says that there will be a great reward, a great reward in heaven for people who overcome opposition and handle harassment with the right attitude. God will reward His servants who suffer for Him. Romans chapter 8 says clearly in verse 17, and since we are His children, we are His heirs. In fact, together with Christ... We are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share His glory, we must also share His suffering. Yet what we suffer now is nothing to com 
be, nothing to be compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Now, now I, I've not done a paraphrase of Scripture, but if I was paraphrasing nothing to be compared to, here's what I would do. It. Capace would say, it's going to blow your mind. That'd be my interpretation of that. You can't imagine. There are no words. It, there's nothing that will be compared to the glory that he will reveal to us later. Wow. What does it mean that we're going to share in his glory? You know, I, I remember when I took my daughter, Chloe, to New York for her. She wanted to go to a Broadway show. She graduated as valedictorian of her senior class. So Carol Ann and I, we bought three tickets. Remember this? We flew to New York. We went to the Marriott Marquis in the Times Square. We spent, spent four nights there, and we went to about three Broadway shows. And I remember walking out to Times Square. Dude, it was crazy. I mean, if you've never been, it's, it's, it's eye-opening. I mean, there's lights everywhere, and there's these billboards. And, and, and the billboards say, you know, Lion King starring, and they've got the star of the show, you know, and it's all, everything's in lights, especially at night. It's, it's brilliant. And I wonder if in heaven, when we get there, there'll be a billboard that says, starring for all eternity, Jesus Christ, co-starring Erica Pacey. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just saying that just to illustrate. Preachers like to illustrate, right? The whole point is this. I don't know what that involves. I just know it is better than we could ever imagine. It will be worth any put down. It will be worth any harassment. It will be worth any persecution. We're going to share in his glory. But first we must share in his suffering. And I can assure you, we can commit our lives to God because He is faithful. He's faithful. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Sometimes suffering is God's will. And we persevere. We do what's right. We remain faithful. Why? Because we can't trust him. Yesterday, Josh and I, Josh Clark and I went to the retirement center at Garrett. I had been in a while, and Sonia's on vacation, so she asked if I would go, and I did. And so we had a great time. Josh preached a great message. And I got to lead music. And they like hymns. And it's funny, I, I didn't even think about this verse, but I just opened my hymn book, and right there was the song, Great is thy faithfulness. Oh, God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with Thee. Thou changest not Thy compassions, they fail not. As Thou hast been, Thou forever will be. Great is Thy faithfulness, great is Thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, Thy hand has provided Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. We can trust him. We can persevere. We can endure the hardship knowing that we can entrust our souls to a faithful creator. And so, yes, I will, Jesus, lift you high in the lowest valley. And yes, I will praise your name. I can do that, whatever the cost, because he's faithful. He is faithful. 
And so what are some practical steps to overcome opposition in our lives? That leads me to number three. We can learn, thirdly, to respond correctly to opposition. How do we do that? What are some ways that we can practically respond to opposition tomorrow in the workplace or at school or sometimes even, frankly, in our own families? Let's look at them together, shall we? Number one, the first thing I see is this. We need to recognize who the real enemy is. This is so important. And I'm really giving these in the order in which I believe they need to be instituted and understood in our lives. Recognize the real enemy. Listen to Ephesians in chapter number 6 and verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Church family, we are fighting spiritual forces, principalities, powers. We must understand that when we are harassed, we're not fighting people. We're fighting spiritual forces in heavenly places. The devil wants to hurt God, and so he attempts to hurt his kids. We are at war, and thank God Jesus has won the victory. Amen. 2,000 years ago on a hill called Mount Calvary, Jesus ripped the gates of hell off their hinges and let Old Testament captives free. And so the person at work harassing you or opposing you is not the real enemy. Satan is the real enemy. That person is just a pawn being used by the real enemy, Satan. Listen again to Ephesians 6.12, this time in the New Living Translation. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers, authorities of the unseen world, mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Number one, we must recognize the real enemy. Secondly, We must refuse to retaliate. I know this could be a little discouraging to some of us that like to fight. You know, bring it on. I'm ready for it. And yet, Jesus' method is so countercultural to what our, our flesh wants to do. Listen to Scripture in Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Give thought, focus, think about this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary. Here's actually what I want you to do. If your enemy is hungry, I want you to feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And remember, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 11, we see clearly that there's three kinds of verbal abuse. I want you to notice these three kinds of verbal abuse as we think about retaliation. You've got the word revile, the word persecute, and then uttering all kinds of evil against you falsely. Let's list those just for a moment. First of all, let's take a moment, think about the word revile. Men will revile you. What does that mean? To be reviled is when people try to discredit you or say derogatory things about you. 
So let's understand, this is going to happen. We will be reviled. We'll be discredited. People will say things about us. Secondly, notice the word persecution. Jesus was persecuted. Others are persecuted across our world. But it seems that oftentimes it's just a mistreatment of people. Sometimes it does include physical mistreatment. But for the most part, it's a verbal abuse. It's a harassment. It's opposition to our faith. It's a mistreatment. And then finally we notice here that they're going to utter all kinds of evil against us falsely. They're going to lie about us. There's going to be some deceit, some deception. The world loves to find fault with believers. They love it. They're going to insult you. They they will mistreat you. They will make lies about you. But may we never forget that they labeled Jesus a blasphemer. They labeled Jesus a heretic, a liar. They even labeled him as a glutton. They called him a drunkard. But Jesus never reviled back. Jesus never retaliated. And I want to say this to us, church family, that you're never more like Jesus when you don't attack back somebody who's attacked you with a personal insult, threat, gossip, or whatever. You're never more like Jesus than when you don't attack back. I I believe that. I think this indicates more than anything else that we understand we're not fighting against flesh and blood. This person needs Jesus. And you may be the only Bible they ever read. Let's give them the right version of the Bible to read in our lives. They may need Christ. They're not the enemy. They need Christ. Let's not retaliate. Thirdly, respond positively. I know it's someone saying, thinking maybe, preacher, you, you, you don't mean that, do you? I mean, surely, surely what you mean is just respond like maybe slightly negative, like stand your ground. Well, let's see what Scripture says in Romans 12, 21. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Question this morning, is this your normal reaction when you're put down? Think about it. Is this my normal reaction when I'm put down to overcome evil with something good? Because you'll never get ahead by trying to get even. You'll never get ahead. I've never seen anyone get ahead by trying to get even. Most people seem to, first of all, react to the situation. In reacting to the situation, they end up presenting the person. In resenting the person, they begin to retaliate against the person when instead Scripture teaches we should respond positively like Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44 teaches. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Is that easy? Yes or no? No. Is it unusual? Yes. But this is what God calls us to. When you're put down, build them up. When people nitpick you, be nice to them. You can't control the things others say about you, and you can't control the harassment you receive, but I'll tell you something, you can't control how you respond to it. You can't control that. So respond positively. Love them. Pray for them. Pray for their good. I I, I don't, honestly, this is the truth. 
and my family can vouch for me, I rarely ever watch a movie. But I had a flight the other day with a little extra time, and sitting by myself, I watched this movie called Big George Foreman. Has anybody, I'm just curious, it wasn't very popular, probably had about, you know, $1,000 at the box office, I'm sure. But did anybody see Big George Foreman yet? You did, brother? Okay, I got one. Anybody else? Just me? All right, good. It's a better, it's a better illustration. So Big George Foreman was a prize fighter. And he, he started, uh, he, he went to a, like a home, Jeff, uh, it made me think about you. He was put in a, in a, he was doing some really bad situations in his life, and he was put in a home. And the guy in the home noticed he could, he could fight, he could box. And so he helped, he trained him, and he started fighting, and he won his first 40 fights. And big George Foreman, as a lost man, not saved, won the heavyweight championship of the world. Very arrogant, very ugly, living the wildlife, promise, I mean, all of it. Finally, he gets beat by Muhammad Ali. He's laying in his locker room and he goes into cardiac arrest. This is in his biography as well. Look this up. It's also in the movie. He goes into cardiac arrest. Literally at the table, somebody says, I think he's dead. He takes this deep breath as if his heart started beating again. He drops to his knees because he had a mother who prayed for him. And throughout the entire movie, it shows he had a godly mother who continued to pray for him, pour life into him told him he was going down the wrong path. He needed Jesus. He falls to his knees. He gets saved. He gets up, looks at his trainer, says, I'm not fighting anymore. He goes and starts a church in, in the roughest part of town, opens up a community center like we've got on Belding Street, starts receiving hundreds and hundreds of kids off the streets and to, to give them a better way, and, and, and he's a pastor. And for 10 years, he walks away from boxing and pastors a church. Well, then somebody embezzles the money that he had that he was strategically keeping these things open with because he wasn't fighting and making all this money anymore, right? So he has to go back. He decides that God's leading him to fight again to get some money to, to pay back, or to, to, to be able to open up the home again. And, and all that happens. But what's crazy is at age 45, if you don't know anything about prize fighting, George Foreman became the oldest man ever to become the heavyweight champion of the world at age 45. I don't know if you're 45, but can you imagine right now being the heavyweight champion of the world? Somehow he, he, he climbed his way back up, and he actually won the biggest, on the biggest stage in, in the prize fighting world. In that fight, it was a 28-year-old guy. The guy was beast mode. George Foreman, if you've ever seen him, I know he sold those griddles, but I don't think he ever, he ever used them. <laughs> he had that big old belly, right? But, I mean, if he hit you, he put you to sleep. But this guy was just cut, rock solid, looked like Mike Tyson, you know. So a round ends. How many of you know this, that in fighting, after the bell rings, you can't hit, right? You can't hit. It's not fair. So the bell rings, George Foreman starts walking back, and this guy cold cocks him in the head in the fight. And in the movie, and this is my illustration, George Foreman, this saved, radically changed individual, love the Lord, he turns around, he goes, and, and, and you could see the look on his face, and then he goes. And he just walks away. And in that moment, I thought, you know, what, what kind of lessons can we sometimes learn in those moments, even from a silly movie, even though it's a true life story, of how you and I ought to respond positively? 
What about Tim Tebow? Anybody follow Tim Tebow? One of the greatest athletes I think that's ever played college football, won a national championship, won a Heisman Trophy, a man who was under more harassment and persecution and attack from the, uh, from, from the, from the world than I, I think I've ever seen an athlete, actually went to the NFL, won a playoff game against the famous Pittsburgh Steelers, and basically got booted out of football, never was given a chance, regardless of how good he was or how good he was. It doesn't make any difference. The truth is, here's a young man who understood that even though you're persecuted, you respond positively. Just be a witness, and that's what he's been. And you and I have that opportunity, yay, on a different level, a smaller level, to be someone who responds positive to the harassment we receive as believers. And then finally, I want to say this in the text. This is how you respond properly to opposition. You rejoice over it. Rejoice over it. Look at Matthew 5, 12. Rejoice and be glad. I actually like the King James translation here where it says rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Rejoice and be glad. When people put you down for your faith, not because you're being obnoxious, not because you're being arrogant, not because you're being self-righteous, but because you're being like Jesus, don't complain, celebrate. This is what the Bible teaches. Don't rejoice in the persecution, but rather rejoice that you're being identified with Jesus Christ. The goal is not to be persecuted. The goal is to be more like Jesus. And if you're persecuted, rejoice. If it means you're being more like Jesus, rejoice. Rejoice because it means God's Spirit can be seen in your life. Otherwise, you wouldn't be persecuted. Think about this, 1 Peter 4, beginning of verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God is on you. People can see God in your life. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Think about it, church. If it couldn't be seen in your life, nobody would be harassing you. But it's an indication when it is seen in your life that you are becoming more like Jesus. And so consider it a confirmation and a compliment to your faith. Rejoice because it means that God has counted you worthy. Look, if you would, at Acts 5 on the screen. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And after they beat them, they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. So they beat them, don't speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, beaten, bloodied, battered, rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The Bible teaches that when you are being persecuted or when you are being harassed, that God can trust you with it. He's counted you worthy. And remember, this affliction, this persecution is only temporary. It's just for a short period of time. Follow along with me finally in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. For our present troubles are small. They won't last very long. I mean, how long will they last? I, I'm 58. I, 70 years, 80 years, 90 years. We have some 80. My, my mother-in-law is 88, Michelle. 88 years old. We've got a lady over here that attends uh, our, our, our Sunday class. She's 103. 
30 feet away from you every Sunday morning, marrying 103 years. So even if you live to be 103, let's read the verse. It won't last very long. Yet they produce for us in these, these present troubles that are small and won't last very long, they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Paul says we don't look at the things that are seen. We look at the things that are unseen because the things that are seen are temporary and the things that are unseen are eternal. That's why we need to have an eternal perspective. And this is not always easy. Because we live so much in the moment for the temporary thrill. We just want to get by today. But what I want to encourage you with is this, that even if we just live 80 years here, let's keep in mind we're going to live in eternity there. And so if we can, if we can receive some rewards for the 67 or 80 or 90 years we live here and enjoy those rewards for an eternity, hallelujah. Because this is all so temporary. All of this is. It's fleeting. It's temporary. It's small. And everything we have to look forward to outweighs all of this. Have an eternal perspective. There was a missionary, and I'll close with this. His name was Henry Morrison. Henry Morrison had spent 40 years in Africa as a missionary. And finally, he decided it was time to come home to America. And so he, he got on a vessel leaving Africa for the United States. When the vessel pulled into the New York Harbor, Mr. Morrison and his precious wife, now in their 70s, were amazed. In fact, so amazed that Mr. Morrison looked over at his wife and said, Sweetheart, look. Look at the crowd. Look at all these people there. They didn't forget us. They remembered where, what we've done for God. And then over the speaker in the vessel, our vessel is approaching land, and we'd like to announce we'll be letting the president of the United States, Teddy Roosevelt, off first. Mr. Morrison quickly began to realize that the crowd wasn't for him. Teddy Roosevelt had been in Africa on a, on a big hunting game trip for two weeks. Not 40 years, just two weeks. But tens of thousands of people were waiting on the shore, waving flags, and the band was playing, and the parade was going to start, and they were cheering as Mr. Roosevelt got off that ship. While the Morrisons got off and waved a flag, a cab down to take them to their one-bedroom apartment that the mission board that they had served in gave them so they could live the rest of their years before they died. They got to the little wood bedroom apartment and Mr. Morrison was taking this really hard. So hard that two weeks later he hadn't really come out of it. He was somewhat depressed and his wife took note of it and she said, Henry, you, you, you're getting bitter. You, you, need to, you need to do business with the Lord. I mean, Henry, I don't, I, you're becoming a different person. You need to meet with the Lord. Go, go to the room and pray, Henry, and speak to God about it. He loves you, Henry, and you can pour out your heart to him. Tell him how you feel. But, Henry, don't keep harboring this. 
Henry Morrison went to his little bedroom in that one bedroom apartment. He got on his knees and he was just honest with God. He said, God, I don't get it. I'm just being honest, God. 40 years on the mission field and nobody even noticed. And here's a man, though he was the president, spends two weeks hunting animals and he comes back and everybody honors him. God, I just don't get it. After 10 minutes in prayer, he got up off his feet, walked back into the living room, and Miss Morrison noticed there was a change, and he was smiling. His spirits were different, and so she said, Well, Henry, did you meet with the Lord? He said, Honey, I did. He said, You were right. That's all I needed. I poured my heart out to God. I just told him I didn't understand, and I was still struggling with that event that happened a couple of weeks ago, and I'm just really having a difficult time, and Honey, I can't explain it, but I felt as if I felt God's hand on my shoulder. And then I heard him whisper in my ear, Yeah, but Henry, you're not home yet. You're not home yet, Henry. And church family, before you get all discouraged about some of this harassment and persecution, and before we develop a woe-is-me attitude instead of a rejoice and be exceedingly glad, May I remind you, you're not home yet. If you're a follower of Christ, there's a better place. There's a home awaiting us. There's a place being prepared that Glenda Coop right now is in the presence of Jesus. Over the last two months, we've been studying the Beatitudes, the pursuit of happiness. This morning, I made the statement that if you determine to live by these Beatitudes, these principles, you will receive some harassment. Because the pursuit of happiness comes not from pleasure. It comes not from possessions. It comes not from from power. Rather, it comes from fulfilling the purpose for which God has created you. And so in closing, after eight weeks and a deep study, a deep dive into this, these eight principles, I want you to know God has made you to love him, to know him, to serve him, and to fellowship with him. And my prayer this morning is that these eight principles would begin to build us up. And as we leave this place after two months in Matthew 5, that we would remember what Jesus said. I pray that we understand those words more than ever before. Shall we stand together? And as we stand, I want to ask you to join me in a corporate prayer. We've been, we've been doing this at the end of every message through this series and we're going to do it one more time today if you're here today and you've never trusted christ as your savior put your faith in him and you're in the building the balcony has so many people in it we've got a great crowd here this morning and if you have felt that the lord is drawing you to himself in a way that you want to be saved this morning i'll be up front we'd love to have a moment with you hear what God's doing in your life. After the service, I'll be around. If you want to talk, we, we don't leave quickly. We'll be available. The altars will be open if you need to pray. However it is that God would want you to respond, you take this moment and respond. But let's read this together. Let's pray this prayer together as we have throughout these Beatitudes. May our hearts in one accord speak to the Father for just a moment. Would you join me? God, I want to pursue happiness your way. You're going to be number one in my life because this is the most important thing in my life and you are the most important person in my life. 
I want my life to count for the kingdom of God. Whether you give me five years or 50 years to live on this earth, I'm going to get involved. I do not want to sit on the sidelines and be a spectator. I want to be a participator in kingdom work. I'm not going to be a consumer. I'm going to be a contributor. Father, make me strong and not ashamed to live for you. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.